I may get into some trouble with the alliance of magicians for what I'm about to say. But magicians really only have one main trick up their sleeve. It's misdirection. In order for their tricks to work, they have to get you to think that one thing is happening when really something else is happening. So a quick perusal of the interwebs would ruin uh, numerous of these tricks. I'm just going to ruin one for you, but it's probably already been ruined. It's a trick where someone's being sawed in half. You know how this works. What we're supposed to think is that there's one person in that box. And what's really happening is there are two contortionists in these boxes. And one of them, as a sword is going through there, they've contorted themselves so their head and their arms are out. And as that sword goes through, through and they pull the box away, the head and the arms keep moving. The other contortionist is in there and their legs are out there and they're kicking so that people see that the person's still alive. We're supposed to think it's one, but it's actually two people. And the reason why I think that works with us so well, uh, because it looks real, is it's, it's easy for us to get focused on one thing. We don't naturally think outside the box. You know, we, we normally see one thing, focus on one thing. In this case, the box. We just look at the box. And that's not just true for tricks, magic tricks. It's also easy for us to just get fixated on one thing and lose sight of the bigger picture. And often what we focus on is what has to do with us. So you remember... Those group projects, either in high school or in college. How easy it is to lose sight of the overall goal and just get focused on your part of the project. So in high school, uh, one of my teachers, I don't know what the class was. I did not obviously learn from the assignment. But we had this project where we had to basically teach something from the class as though we were giving a newscast. So we were to video ourselves and uh, we were supposed to act like we were giving a news story on TV. And... The project, the main part of the project really was writing up the story that was going to be read. That was probably the most important part. But there was also the part of actually sitting down in front of the camera and reading the story. And my friend Travis really wanted to do that part. And you've got to understand, at this time, Sports Center was huge. Uh, and it was, it was like in its, its heyday with all that, that humorous banter from people like Dan Patrick and Keith Oberman. I mean, it was, it was at its height. And so my friend Travis, he really wanted to bring that into our, pro- he wanted our project to look like Sports Center, So he wanted to bring some humor into it. And so he had worked specifically on this one particular segue. And when it got time for him to read that part, he couldn't get it out. He had inadvertently created a tongue twister. He hadn't even realized it. And he tried, try- he wouldn't just change it. He tried and tried to get that one line. He was obsessed with it to get it out. And he he really could never do it. And so for, from Travis's perspective, our project was a complete and utter failure. I think we passed. I think it was fine. But for Travis, it, was, it just was a wash. It was a flop. And I think that's how we often work. You know, if our part doesn't go well, we assume the whole thing's it's just it's a flop. It's a waste. But sometimes we're supposed to fail so that God can succeed succeed and no god's not a magician he's not trying to pull one over on us he's not trying to trick us but as we so easily do with magicians we do that with god we think one thing is happening when really it's something else and that's what moses was experiencing in our passage this morning he thought one thing was supposed to be happening when really god was doing something else he thought he was supposed to convince pharaoh to let god's people go 
But really his role was simply to tell Pharaoh what God tells him to say because God had more than just the release of his people in mind. So as far as Moses was concerned, what he was going through was one big miraculous failure. And that's the way it might look to us too. But we're going to see in this passage two aspects to this miraculous failure that's going to tell us otherwise. So from Exodus 6, verse 28 to chapter 7 and verse 7, we're going to see the plan for the miraculous failure. And then in verse 8 of chapter 7 up to verse 13, we're going to see the foreshadowing of the miraculous failure. And in the end, we're going to, we're going to think about how this apparent failure points to Christ and his mission. So the first thing we're going to look at is the plan for the miraculous failure. And again, it's in Exodus chapter 6. It's page 46 there in the Bible there in the pew. Starting in verse 28. And the first thing we should note is that those verses 28 through 30 are really just a repetition of what has already been said. It brings us up to speed. Verse 28, though, does kind of set this section off so that everything that follows is really the main thing. This is what we've been building to. This is the main story of the Exodus. It's really beginning now. And so this is how Hebrew works. Hebrew stories work like this. There are, throughout these stories, some interruptions to, to fill in some details. And that's what we had with the genealogy. It's framed by verse 13 of chapter 6 and verses 26 and 27. And so that kind of interrupted the story and... We pick up the story now with this repetition in verses 28 through 30. It's not an exact repetition. It's just a summary. Brings us back to, to speed. And verse 29 begins with this authoritative declaration. I am the Lord. So with that, we know who the Lord is. We know he's the creator of heaven and earth. We know that he is the God of the covenant God of the forefathers. And so he begins with this declaration. It's really kind of formal. It's like what a king would do in the ancient world. So Yahweh, the divine king, he gives Moses his orders. Tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, all that I say to you. That's your job, Moses. You're to be my mouth to say what I tell you to say to Pharaoh. One king giving a message to another king. Now, we already know what Moses' response was. Here it's repeated in verse 30. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? Moses is saying, I'm disqualified. Lord, I, I failed. Pharaoh didn't listen to me. And when I talked to him, it got worse. And then when I went to your people, people who had believed me, who had worshipped you, they didn't believe me anymore. I'm a failure. I'm disqualified. And the Lord then responds in chapter 7. He's responding to Moses. Basic, basically, it's his premature resignation. Here's my reg- resignation, God. Well, not just yet. The Lord begins to explain in the beginning, the first two verses of chapter 7. It says, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. We'd already heard something similar to this in chapter 4, but what he says here specifically, if you want to understand that, we, we need to remember that according to the Egyptians, Pharaoh had a divine part to him called a royal ka. It was this divine, immortal side to his nature. That's what they believed. So he was, he was considered the divine son of Amun-Ra. And that meant that he could represent all the other gods in Egypt. 
So what's the Lord doing here? He is basically evening the scales, balancing the scales. He's, he is appointing Moses to this role of God to Pharaoh so that basically he is now going to be on equal footing with Pharaoh. That's why he gave Moses this intermediary, Aaron. Aaron wasn't just a concession because of Moses' timidity. He was part of the plan from the beginning so that Moses could be the kind of divine ambassador that equaled the person he was speaking to. So the terminology here is not saying that the Lord was making Moses divine. It's saying it's the language of appointing someone to a role. Moses can now act in this role as an appropriate counterpart to Pharaoh. He is his equal. So that's the reason why, the first reason why Moses can go and speak to Pharaoh. God is going to be demonstrating Moses' divine right to speak to this supposed person with divine rights also. The second answer to Moses' complaint is really to help him see that he's focused on the wrong thing. His job was not to convince Pharaoh. His job was to simply tell Pharaoh what he commanded him to tell him. The outcome wasn't up to Moses. That's what the Lord's going to show. Now, in Exodus 4.21, God had already said this, but he says it again. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is the second word of three words used to describe what the Lord does to Pharaoh's heart. And this one does more directly mean to cause something to be hard. And that's basically, though, the same meaning as the the strengthening of Pharaoh's heart that he used before. So whether strengthening or hardening, this has to do with Pharaoh's resolve. The miraculous things that God was going to be doing could have made Pharaoh lose his resolve. Could have made him cave, could have made him give in, stop doing what he wanted to do. And so what the Lord actually promised to do was harden Pharaoh's will to crystallize his intentions so that he could withstand God's own pressure. God was going to ensure that Pharaoh could do what he really wanted to do in spite of the pressure that God was going to be putting on him. So again, it's hard to complain about God doing that. It's really... He's only doing something that ensures that Pharaoh gets to do what he wants. But the Lord wouldn't have been able to do these signs and wonders that he intended to do. That is why he hardened Pharaoh's heart. He says to multiply the number of signs and wonders. So the ESV uh, kind of, it, it focuses on that line that says, although, it begins with although, and it kind of makes you think that that line just has to do with the next line, but it also has to do with the first. It's explaining why the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why he gave Pharaoh the wherewithal to resist him so that he could do his own heart's desires. He did that in order to multiply his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And if he had not done that, he couldn't have done all those things. And yet, at the end of this, he says, Pharaoh still will not listen to Moses. So again, that allows God to do his complete plan. He goes on to explain that plan in verse 4. This is what God wants to do. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. As a pastor down in, in Louisville, Jim Hamilton would put it, God intends to glorify himself by delivering his people through Judgment. This is another place in the Bible where we see God's glory in salvation 
through judgment. We saw it with the flood. Right? How was Noah and his family, how were they saved? Through the judgment that fell on others. And that is what's going to happen here. Israel is going to be saved through great acts of judgment that fall on Egypt. Now, you need to remember what Egypt has done. What have the Egyptians done? They have wrongfully enslaved God's people. They mistreated God's people. And people sometimes think the Bible condones slavery. The truth is, it is a complicated reality. I mean, at the time, slavery was an option for punishing the nations around Israel that might attack them. But the only form of slavery allowed in Israel was a form of indentured service in terms of the Israelites. They basically had to agree to this from the start in order to get themselves out of a debt or a difficulty. And it was only the slave that could say, I want to be this person, this, I want this person to be my master for life. Nobody else, that was, that was the only form of slavery. Listen to this law in Exodus, just to clarify the situation. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So understand that the kind of slavery found in America, according to this verse, was considered a capital offense for both the slave trader and the slave owner in Israel. That person, anyone who would have practiced a form of slavery like found in America, would have been put to death in Israel. That's what the, the Egyptians had done. So according to God, Egypt needed to be punished for what they did to his people. And so it was necessary that his rescue of his people happened through the punishment of Egypt. That was the means by which God would save his people. And that was also the means by which they would come to know who Yahweh really is. So Egypt themselves would come to know who Yahweh is. Whether they responded positively or negatively, everyone needs to, to be confronted with God's glory. Everyone needs to come to know who Yahweh is. And that's what the Lord says is a key reason why he was doing what he was doing, why he was hardening Pharaoh's heart, why he was multiplying these signs and wonders. What does it take to get a group of people's attention who are so thoroughly distracted by idolatry how can he get their attention so they, they can see the uniqueness of the true God? It takes an all-out war on the gods of Egypt. So the Lord says in verse 5, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Now, how easy is it for us to, to get focused on the wrong thing, like my friend Travis? Just focus on your part part you have to play. And we imagine everything's going wrong if our part's going wrong. Our objective failed. Well, reason the problem really is sometimes it is just our objective. It's not even God's objective. Nowhere is that clearer to me than in my pastoral role. It's easy to get caught up in what I think my objective is. My objective is growing numbers of believers who enjoy being a part of the church, right? That's, that's the objective. More conversions, more attendance, more joyful experiences here at the church. Because when, when we can have a bigger impact on our community, when we can be a big thing, then that means more and more people hear the gospel. That means more and more people grow in Christ for God's glory. 
But what if God's objective is not accomplished all through one church? What if it's not accomplished in just one part of the world? What if God's actually concerned about the whole world? Not just my community, not just my church. What if God is doing more? What am I really concerned about? Am I really concerned about God and his project and his glory? Or am I just concerned about my role? Am I making this whole enterprise about me and focusing on my church? How is the church built? Do we do it? No, we don't. Jesus said, we do not build his church. God, does, Jesus said that he was going to build his church on the foundation of confessing, gospel confessing believers like Peter. But he would build his church. That's what he says in Matthew 16, 18. We are instruments used by God. God is the one doing it. You remember Paul mentioning planting and watering in, third, or in 2 Corinthians 3. Who causes the growth, though? God does. God alone gives the increase. You can plant, you can water, but only God can make it grow. So, we need to understand that God is the one who accomplishes his objective. And that involves the whole planet. That means that it's not our job to bring about conversions or growth. It's our job to be faithful. It's our job to listen to what God commands and to do what he says. That's what matters, not the outcome that we have no control over. So look at our good examples here in the text. They are good examples at this point. After complaining, Moses listens to God. Verse 6 says, Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded him. That's really a summary for the chapters that continue. They, they do their job. They got it. They understood what their role was. They could be faithful even after continually facing what, what looks like failure. It's all part of God's plan. Text also says in verse 7, Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, despite the fact that they go on to live 40 more years, we're not supposed to think of this as really just two-thirds of a, of a normal lifespan. They were considered old in the ancient world. So understand, this is the beginning of God's use for them in ministry. Clearly, it's never too late to be used by the Lord. Sometimes it takes a while for God to get us where we need to be so that he can use us. D.L. Moody, Moody reportedly once said that Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court thinking he was somebody, 40 years in the desert learning that he was nobody, and 40 years showing that what God can do with a somebody who found out he was nobody. Sometimes that's how long it takes for us to realize how insignificant our role is, how great our God is. So that's the plan of the miraculous failure here. God's glory and salvation through great acts of judgment, even through this failure. Let's look at the foreshadowing 
of the miraculous failure. That begins in verse 8, chapter 7. And the Lord continues to show his sovereignty over the situation because he tells Aaron and Moses that Pharaoh is going to tell them to prove themselves by working a miracle. That is not God just being a good guesser. Like, I bet he's probably going to. No, this is demonstration, demonstrating that this is part of the plan. So when it happens, that provides the perfect opportunity for the Lord to begin these signs and wonders. That's actually the word that's used. The word translated miracle here is the same word translated wonders in verse 3. It's the first of God's wonders. It's really the same miracle that Moses had done for the Israelites. And based on verse 15, later on in the chapter, it seems like this staff is the same staff that was used. This is now the staff of God, as he mentions in chapter 4 and verse 20. So Moses is going to tell Aaron, throw the staff down and it will become a serpent. Now, earlier in Exodus, I did mention that at this point, the word for serpent is different than it was when Moses was on Mount Sinai and God was talking to him. In Exodus for three, the normal Hebrew word for snake was used, nachash. And that's the same word found in Genesis 3, the serpent. It's a normal word. The Hebrew word here is, as I mentioned then, tananin, or tanin. Tananin is the plural. Tanin. And that can refer to a serpent, but can also be used for great sea creatures, like in Genesis 1.20. It can be used kind of poetically to describe chaotic waters, in the Psalms, it's used to describe Egypt, though, in somewhat this poetic sense, maybe a great monster or maybe just a great serpent in Isaiah 51. And then it's also used to describe Pharaoh, the Pharaoh that was living in the days of the exile in Ezekiel 29. So it's used in a kind of different way, but it's also used in the Bible in, in a poetic parallelism for a venomous snake. And that, that snake is usually thought to be a cobra which is, again, very fitting for Egypt because you've seen maybe King Tut's headdress with that hooded serpent poised to attack on his headdress. The serpent, or the cobra even, was, was a very important symbol for Egypt. It was actually also thought to be the form of a number of goddesses, one of them being the goddess who's the patron goddess of lower Egypt where all these encounters were happening. So based on its use throughout Egypt, it's used for Egypt. The mention of a serpent in 7.15 seems like this tanin is a serpent, not another reptile. So if you see in your notes anything that says otherwise, it's probably still a snake. Verse 10, though, tells us once again, Moses and Aaron obeyed. They went to Pharaoh, did just what the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. But notice what Pharaoh does. Verses 11 and 12, it says, Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. Now, we need to think very carefully about what's going on in the text. Pharaoh calls for his best and brightest graduates of the Egyptian Hogwarts School of Wizards and Wizardry, or Witchcraft and Wizardry. These are wise men and the sorcerers. The second of those words is, or it's a word that's used expressly. It's expressly forbidden for Israel, the practice of magic. And then the next word, magicians, is probably an, an abbreviation of an Egyptian word for priests who practice magic in Egypt. 
Now, we have been a bit desensitized to this subject through Harry Potter and before him, Gandalf and others. In our stories, we have magic, and we we can kind of think that there's an innocence to that. I enjoy those stories. But these are the real McCoy. They aren't just spitting Latin and shaking a stick at something. These, these, These guys are doing something else. They're using the dark arts. So what were the the Egyptian dark arts? One part of it really was just like our modern magicians. So Dwayne Garrett, he he talked about a hollowed idol that they found where one of the magicians would get in and speak as though the god was speaking from the idol. So they did do that. But then there was a whole other side to it where they were attempting to tap into what they believed was a part of the universe with this power that was accessible to both the gods and sorcerers that you could tap into and try to control your world. So they make spells, they use divination, they do these different things that really Rowling is taming down in her stories. But in their undomesticated form, these are not neutral things. The only powers that you can tap into are demonic. So when they weren't acting like magicians like ours, They were in league with demons. That's what was going on. So now, also, when you look at what they did, unless those staffs had all the molecular components of a snake already within them, then I think it's outside of Satan's abilities to actually turn a staff, a wooden staff, into a snake. He cannot create molecules that do not exist. He's not God. Even if the staff did somehow contain all the necessary molecules, I really don't think God has given Satan the power, the ability, the authority to pull a Dr. Frankenstein and make life from non-life. So I, I believe that what was involved here is some form of trickery, either human trickery or demonic trickery, one way or the other. But they're not doing the same thing as Moses and Aaron. And the text points us to that because it says they did it by their secret arts. You could just translate that. By secrecy. And of course, a magician does not reveal his secrets. So we don't know what they did. But there was no secrecy with what Moses and Aaron did. They just obeyed. God did the rest. And with God, the creator of everything from nothing, he could do that sort of thing. He could turn water into wine, he can cause oil to keep coming from a jar. You can make a, a stone axe head float. You can even cause the water of the Red Sea to split into two walls so that his people can walk across on dry land. He can change a staff into an actual serpent. And his act is shown to be greater than what the magicians did because notice in verse 12, it says the sorcerers were able to make their staffs into serpents, but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. God still wins. So why do this? Why would God go about things this way? As I mentioned in chapter 4, this word for wonders or miracle, however you want to translate it, it conveys an idea of of a message. It's, It's actually supposed to convey a message, this wonder. So the whole act, this whole thing that God does from all the serpents that are eventually swallowed, it is conveying a message. It's telling Pharaoh that he's warned. Egypt was known for serpents, even known as a serpent. 
So they're represented by all these taninim that the, the sorcerers made. And what the Lord's saying is he is greater. Whatever power, whatever fight they can put up, he is going to win in the end. So this demonstration is really a foreshadowing. There's going to be many failures along the way. And it's going to look like failure overall. In the end, this is what's going to happen. Egypt will be defeated. God will receive glory by saving his people through these mighty acts of judgment. But it doesn't look like victory yet. So look at verse 13. It says, Still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them. Now many who are uncomfortable with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. They point to this verse and they say, see, Pharaoh does it. We don't don't see God doing it yet. Pharaoh does it. No, actually, Pharaoh didn't do anything in this verse. More literal translation is, I think, the CSB that says, Pharaoh's heart was hard. That's the way this stem in Hebrew works. It's just describing the subject, Pharaoh's heart. So in English, we use an adjective to do that. In Hebrew, they could use this stem of this verb to to do that. So basically it's saying not that something happened to Pharaoh's heart, but that something was true of Pharaoh's heart. His heart remained hard. It's really not that anything happened to it. It's that it continued to be what it was, hard, so that he's able to resist God's pressure here. So far from suggesting that Pharaoh is now doing some activity that God said he was going to do, this is actually showing that God's promise has been kept. Promise he made both here and in chapter 4. Notice the way verse 13 ends. As the Lord had said. What had the Lord said? Not just that Pharaoh wouldn't listen. The Lord had said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't listen. And the text now reads, basically, and Pharaoh's heart was hard, just like God said. Which is saying, God did this. This is the evidence that God had strengthened Pharaoh's resolve so that he could keep doing, that he would not be intimidated by this event so that God would receive glory by saving his people through the punishment that Egypt deserved. Things aren't always what they seem. Some failures are actually victories. Take the, the greatest example of this, the greatest miraculous failure of all time. When God sent his promised end-time king, the Messiah. You know, Israel, people of Israel thought they knew exactly what was supposed to happen. The Messiah was supposed to come and conquer the enemies of God. Well, he did. It's not the way that they thought. The true enemy of God was greater than the Romans. The true enemy of God was sin and death. And that had impacted more than just his people. It had impacted the whole world. All of humanity. And so the Messiah's mission looked like an even greater failure than Moses' mission. Instead of setting up God's kingdom, the king was killed by a rival kingdom. So it looks like failure. He lost. But that was the plan. Because once again, God would receive glory in salvation through judgment. For humans, victory looks like strength not weakness. But God wins through weakness. Through failure. So for Moses, the the apparent failure to convince the Egyptian king to let 
God's people go was exactly how God achieved his plan to rescue his people through the punishment on their enemy. For the Messiah, the apparent failure of Jesus dying on the cross was exactly how God achieved his glorious plan to rescue his people through the punishment of their greatest enemy, their own sin. Now, if that's how God works, shouldn't we be very careful to evaluate what success truly is and what weakness and failure truly are? How much is it going to take for us to learn? World strategies are not how we accomplish God's plan, God's purposes. It isn't through our strength that God achieves his purposes. For the weakness of God is stronger than men. It isn't through our wisdom that we achieve God's purposes. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So here's our strategy, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1. We preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So you want to study human practices for ministry, be my guest. But I'm going to take my chances with the God who wins by losing The God who conquers death by dying. And the world is never going to understand this. This is a stumbling block or foolishness to those who think they know better than God. I just finished watching uh, the National Geographic documentary called The Mission. I don't know if you've watched it. It's about this young man named John Chow who attempted to reach this primitive and lost people living on this remote island, the North Sentinel Island, out in the Bay of Bengal between India and Myanmar. And you might have heard about him when news of his death came out in 2018. There was a lot of things said, a lot of opinions about what had happened. And I'm not going to argue that he did everything right. I'm not going to argue that. In fact, based on his background, I don't think we'd have agreed on missions. But what I will defend to the hilt is that reaching a remote Indigenous people for Christ is worth intruding on their disconnected and uninfluenced lives. Most of the voices on that documentary disagreed with that. Now they saw this, this is fraught with problems. You know, all you could do is bring disease and death to this people. It's going to destroy their culture. It's going to destroy their way of life. It's going to rob them of their story by forcing your Christian story onto them. One of the clearest voices saying that was from a former missionary named Dan Everett. And his story really is sad. He was a missionary to a group of indigenous people in Brazil. So he was well acquainted with what John was motivated by. He was well acquainted with what it was going to take in order to reach these people. He spent 30 years reaching out to these, this Brazilian tribe. But he was disillusioned by what looked like failure to him. The people weren't interested in the gospel. So he grew to believe that he had done the wrong thing. And he walked away from the faith entirely. So now as an atheist, this is what he says in the documentary. He says, it's unfortunate that we still have people in the 21st century believing first century myths enough to die for them. I understand why someone would think that that was such a waste. Because if Christ is not raised, all you really can accomplish is problems. You can bring a contagion into this primitive 
community. It's either kill or be killed. That's what Everett assumed the tribe was thinking. It seems like the only possible outcome, failure. If, if Christ is not raised, that's it. John Chow, he was inspired by missionaries that went before him like Jim Elliott, who famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's the same thing really Jesus said. You hang on to your life, you'll lose it. Give up your life for my sake and you will truly find it. Gene Krantz, the flight director, director of the Apollo 13 mission, he is famous for saying, failure is not an option. Well, brothers and sisters, on our mission, failure is an option. Failure from the world standpoint is an option. But that's not what we're going to hear from our Lord when we're faithful. We will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our aim. Faithfulness, not success, not what we think of as success. God is the one who succeeds. Our job is to listen and obey, like Moses. We tell people what God told us. And we leave the outcome to God. Because we don't know what he's doing. We don't know what he's doing in our community, in the world. And that does take the pressure off. But we still want to make sure we're obeying. Sometimes you can get sloppy thinking, all I have to do is give the word. I'm just going to give the word, leave it to God. We still have to do that as Christ, who had compassion on the lost. Like Paul, who urged those he was telling the gospel to. He wanted to persuade them. But we do that recognizing our role. We're instruments. All we can do is obey and give people the word. Be faithful. And as the Lord promised in Isaiah 55, 11, my word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. We just don't know which, which purpose he had in mind for the individuals we're sharing with. Paul gives two options, really, for the purpose of hearing that gospel message. For some, it confirms their condemnation. For others, it gives them life. So Paul described it again in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 15 and 16. He said, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance of life to life. What does the gospel smell like to you? Is it death? Failure? Or is it life from the dead? If you think it's a failure, reality is you're just focused on the wrong thing. You think one thing's happening when really something else was happening. It wasn't just a man dying. It was a savior paying the debt that others owe. So that the ones who owe that debt of sin would receive his reward. When it comes to salvation, the only way to win is through Christ's failure, through his death. And when you know that, then you can pick up your cross and follow him. Join me in prayer.
Father, we are thankful that you did not set up a scenario where it was on us to accomplish your mission. That you gave us our orders. Your son gave us our orders, but then he said that he would be with us always to the end of the age. The one who will build his church is the one who tells us to go and make disciples. So we are not building the church. We are those who are simply faithful to do what you've called us to do. We thank you. We thank you for your promise that you are going to accomplish this plan, that you are going to save some from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That that is a sure thing. That the only chance, the only outcome is that there's going to be a myriad of people from every single people group on this planet. They're going to be singing before your throne. And we are thankful that you are willing to use us to accomplish your plans, to make us the instruments that you use to reach the lost, that it's not us doing it, but you do it through us. And I pray that you would help us as a church to see that. And yes, we give towards missions. And yes, we we pray for our missionaries, but that you would call some from our church to go and to share the good news with others and And that we would be doing that now. That we would recognize that you use us, all of us, not just pastors, not just missionaries, not just evangelists. You use us to transform lives. Give us the confidence that you are at work. Give us the the strength to rely on you, to be faithful, to take the opportunities you give, to not be cowards in those moments, like we so naturally can be. If we rely on ourselves, we should be cowards. But to know that your strength is greater than our strength. Your weakness is greater than our strength. Help us to recognize that and to be faithful. I pray for anyone here that does not know you, that thinks that the story of Christianity is just that, it's a story. It's not really true. I pray that you would get their attention so that they, they see you now and they see your son now as he truly is before they see him one day. When as was done with Egypt will be done to them. They would recognize this amazing love that you've shown in taking the punishment, taking the payment for our sin the gospel would transform their hearts even now. Pray that you'd help us to be faithful in conveying your truth. Amen.